Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Hi, uh, my name is Peter Bloom, and welcome to a new episode of Another World is Potable. Um, I think I probably always say this, but I'm, I'm so excited about uh, our guest today. Um, so, you know, I think all of us are interested in questions of rights, and all of us are question, interested in questions of human rights. And we have two guests today that are really, I would say, are global change makers in pushing what is a 21st century human rights agenda. Um, so I'm here with Professor Clara Sandoval from the University of Essex, and then with Chris Estelle from Redress. So thank you so much both for joining the podcast. Oh, it's great to be with you, Peter. Thank you. Yeah, very happy to be here with you joining the podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, well, so I, I, I will start with a question I, I ask almost all the guests, but it, co- it really takes us in so much interesting directions is like, what specifically do you do? And how did you become inspired to do this? So I'm legal advisor at um, Redress. I'm a UK qualified solicitor. Um, why do I do this? Well, I suppose there are two kind of strands of this for me um and it kind of dates back a little bit to just after my university time and i spent a year in south africa um in 1989 1990 time just before the end of apartheid just as things were beginning to change but before things had really opened up and i ended up working in an area of virtual civil war in kwazulu natal in the east of the country and um I could see that during the time that I was in South Africa that year, that I was kind of shifting from this kind of fairly idealistic but fairly neutral stance to what, towards what was going, uh, going on there um, to one of, there was much more of solidarity with those that were most impacted. And then the following, the following year, I was back in South Africa and I was working, helping to set up an advice a legal advice centre for farm workers. And I began to see that law could be used as a positive force to kind of empower the, the farm workers um, who were in such dire straits but with very little rights at all, um, and to help to bring about some kind of broader change. And so those two things, this kind of idea of solidarity and this idea of law being used as a a means of change, if you like, or as a, at least as a positive force to empower individuals, have kind of ran as, run as a thread, really, through, through my legal work since then. So working to, I suppose, make that legal system more accessible to the vulnerable, whether that was in the work I did in Birmingham in the UK, whether it was helping to run a centre for um, abused women in Chile, or whether it was litigating... Uh, with farmers in Colombia against British multinationals, or now indeed working with torture survivors in seeking uh, reparations and so on. That's the kind of thread that has run through um, the trajectory that I've followed, at least. 
Well, I mean, that's so inspiring. And, and Claire, how, did you have a similar trajectory? Uh, well, a, a bit so. Uh, so I, I am Clara Sandoval. I come from Colombia. I am a lawyer by training. Uh, and in Colombia, a country that has been devastated by armed conflict, poverty, exclusion, discrimination, I had the opportunity to grow up in a family that was all the time questioning what was going on. And, and those were my usual discussions or conversations during lunch or dinner uh, with two parents and siblings that were really into, into trying to understand what was going on, but how we could make it different and better. And I think that led me to study law and to identify rights discourse as a potential tool for social change. Um, and then I, I always saw my, like I, like I had a commitment towards trying to create new knowledge that could somehow challenge traditional understandings, even of rights. Uh, at the same time, I wanted to have a clear, direct engagement in reality and trying to, as far as possible, help to transform those realities with the knowledge we produce. And when I came, I had the opportunity to come to Essex to study. Actually, I am not only working at Essex, but I had the opportunity to be educated at Essex to, uh, for my master and my PhD. Uh, I got to understand uh, the importance of, of uh, you know, full engagement with practice. So working on human rights, for example, as an academic, I think makes no sense if you don't have a direct relation with how you transform the realities of people. So you cannot be just in that very comfort zone where you just produce knowledge and leave it to others to, to bring about change. I think uh, when you do human rights as an academic, you have the obligation to also translate that into practice. Uh, and that's why I found, for example, my relationship with redress particularly meaningful because in a way it allows me to test many things I'm thinking, uh, ideas I have, particularly in the areas I work in, like the Inter-American System of Human Rights, etc., uh, and to help them uh, to bring that change uh, to fruition. So, Abhi, it, it sounds so you know amazing what both of you do. Um, but I, I think one question, and I know this is going to be very, very basic, um, is the fact that when you're not in human rights law, and particularly when you're not dealing with things like uh, legally uh, challenging torture. One of the questions that comes up is, why is it often so hard to hold those who are doing something that for many people so obviously wrong? I mean, I don't think you'll find anyone, you know, from the right to the left that says, oh, torture is great, uh, uh, legally responsible. And how do you have to think about this differently when you're looking at this from a legal standpoint than necessarily when maybe you're looking at it just from a, a kind of popular, you know, we shouldn't have torture standpoint. Chris, would you like to have a go first? <clears throat> Why is it so difficult? I mean, I think that the, what you're often trying to do here is to take a very vulnerable individual who is, a survivor of one of the worst things that we could imagine and to try and enable them to challenge the person who has done that thing to them. That's essentially what you're trying to do in these cases. 
And if you look at it in those terms, it's quite easy to understand why it's so difficult to do. And even though you may have a reasonably sympathetic, if I can put it in that way, international legal framework, i.e., as you say, generally speaking, people think torture is not a good thing. I mean, that's not universal, I think, these days, but nonetheless, generally speaking, that's pretty much understood. Um, but that's often at an international level, and you're really trying to deal with someone who is at a very grassroots level, who is often not going to be high, it, it varies obviously, but often not highly educated, not necessarily always understanding what the system is that they could take advantage of, and needing to take that action initially at least at a local level where the resources for them to do that will be often very limited. They will often not have money to be able to pay a local lawyer. Local lawyers may, may find that there's no money in taking torture cases and therefore they don't really include that within their practice. Um, but until you've, until you've gone through those domestic remedies at a local level, you often don't have access to that broader international framework which enables you to seek that accountability at, at, a, um, at, at a more robust level, at an international level. Um, so I think that those may be some of the kind of starting points in terms of understanding the obstacles. Uh, may, may I add to that, that, when you take a case like the case of Azul, uh, who is a person who was tortured because of her sexual orientation, uh, she was gay at the time, uh, you also try to understand some of those challenges in practice. So we have, in principle, a very, uh, I would say, a strong international framework that prohibits torture. But when you are facing a case like the one we faced, people begin to question where the limits of torture are because we, in a way, are dependent of stereotypes. We, we cannot see things as they are because they don't allow us to see that. Uh, so there is like this unconscious bias. Uh, so people who have problems because they, they don't feel comfortable when they see that other that is not like them, uh, then they might say what the police did in, uh, in the case of Azul, that was to uh, rape her and, and torture her in different ways uh, because of her sexual orientation, that might be even right. Uh, so these are, this is a massive challenge, the stereotypes, our beliefs, the ideology that predominates in particular areas that don't let you see the light and the darkness of, of things. And I think it's very important when we can contribute to actually show that in relation to this, there is no really gray area. It is what it is. It is torture. Uh, and you can empower these types of victims to actually claim what is legitimately their right. I think that's, that's so powerful. And that brings them to, I guess, another kind of basic question that I would have, which is in the popular media, there's often really kind of, uh, I, I would say, inspiring presentations, but uh, of what it means to be a human rights lawyer. Um, and, and it's often, I would say, very kind of Hollywood-esque, if you will, you know, the dramatic courtroom scenes and things. But how would you say that human rights law, and particularly the types of human rights law in, in which you both do, in practice, uh, is different than what is often popularly presented? Wow, that's uh, that's a very 
very important, very interesting question. Um, I think I think we don't fit the standard of the of the successful, rich, uh, white male lawyer uh, that has it all, uh, and and we don't want to fit that standard. Um, uh, I think that the, the right view of the human rights successful lawyer is the lawyer that is able to be, be women, male, white, black, uh, you, you, uh, you know, with a different uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, you name it. Uh, it's a person that is able to push uh, the frontiers of law in order to gain protection of those that need it. Um, I think that's, for me, at least personally, my biggest success. Uh, I measure it in terms of how many victims I am able to, to help to, to fight for the rights successfully. How many will come to me and say, uh, Clara, I do feel that finally I had the opportunity to speak my truth and, and someone heard me. And, and I was able to reivindicate my rights or to feel in some way that I have dignity, that I have a right to be dignified. I think that's, that's the most that you can expect uh, as a human rights lawyer, that you have moved the, the, the borders of law to, to, a, to, to enhance protection, that you have empowered victims through doing that. This is another very important point. I don't think that we human rights lawyers are only lawyers that are working with paper or that aim to go into a courtroom and, and have their, you know, hour of, of a show. No, I, I think human beings, uh, we see the faces of these human beings. We, we try to translate the feelings of these human beings into law. So there is a, a very strong human side uh, to what we do. And that also brings the other side of the equation, which is uh, something that at times is not recognized, and is that we, as human rights lawyers, particularly working on issues like torture, enforced disappearances, uh, you know, the privation of food, hunger, uh, starvation, sexual violence, we have a very high toll in terms of the, the psychological impact this brings to our lives. Um, the, the, the things we have had to see listen to uh, are really, really grotesque, not to say more. Um, and that's the other dimension of being a human rights lawyer, is learning to deal with this uh, dark side of humanity uh, by bringing some light to it. But it, it also comes at a cost. And the, mm. the, the, the kind of glory of, of the big case that has a big success, which is often how human rights lawyers are portrayed in in that sense um that you described peter is is not really um something that happens very often uh, you know whilst we uh, at redress for example we do have we do have high profile cases you know we do have cases involving guantanamo detainees we do have cases that are in the media we do have things which which are recognized as kind of big you know higher profile cases but but a lot of the cases, and the case that which we've recently had this success on in the Inter-American Court, um, the, the case of Vassal, um, is a good example of a case which, you know, it didn't, it wasn't a big glorious case to start with. You know, this was a case involving a very marginalised person in in a very small um, town in in Peru, 
and de dealing with a very difficult issue in terms of um, in terms of her uh, her rights and the violation of, of the rights that she had suffered. And that case started really small. <laughs> and and yes, it's it's turned into this kind of rather larger and 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 a great a great success for her in the end. Um, but but it, it's this kind of um, paradox, I suppose, of, of on the one hand, you're, you're dealing with potentially quite a high profile issue, uh, which comes through in this in this kind of glorious thing at the end. But you're dealing with an individual who comes from a very marginalized community on the other side of it. And as um, Clara mentioned, often, you know, are, are, are struggling in various ways. And it's not glamorous in that sense. So there's this paradox between the glamour and, and, and the reality, I think, which is, which is quite interesting. Yeah, and, and, and if you allow me to, to add two things to that, the, the other thing that needs to be uh, remembered is that these cases take ages. Many, many years go by until you achieve justice. And here, for example, in the case of Azul, I would say we have achieved so far partial justice. And why would I say that? This happened in the year 2008. That's when uh, the facts began to happen. And only now in 2020, we get a judgment from an international tribunal uh, doing some justice and ordering very important forms of reparation. But now we start another big part of the equation of the fight for justice and it's ensuring implementation of the judgment so that Azul can really see through her life that the case really changed something for her and for others in her situation. So it's, it's, it's a permanent fight. It takes years, but it paves the way for others to, to achieve similar things in less time. Uh, you are also, and that's the second point I wanted to make, uh, part of the success of these cases is to become an important seed uh, for the future so that other courts, other people can use this as a means for social change so that there, wherever they are in a situation like that of Azul can actually say what happened to me is torture, see it, others are saying it. This, this will give some strength to their arguments and hopefully help to change their situation. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it sounds to me like one of the key aspects of this, and this is something that I, I think we cover with a lot of guests, is really talking about the kind of work and labor that goes into changing the world, right? That it, it's not something that, you know, happens overnight, but as you said, it, it's a multi-generational and it's an everyday um, you know, struggle in, in oftentimes, you know, not easy conditions. Um, and, and I think that's really important to remember because for many activists who are maybe listening to this and just everyday people who are really interested in changing the world that there is, it sounds like this really need to, you know, be willing to engage in this work. Um, and it's often hard work, as you said. Um, and one of the things that, so far you've mentioned is, it sounds like this is so much more than how you would traditionally think about just kind of legal work, that the, it's, it's very interdisciplinary in terms of the knowledge you have to have and also multifaceted in terms of the ways in you need to approach this. Um, I mentioned, Chris, you mentioned earlier the word solidarity and I, and I think that's a really kind of inspiring way to think about, you know, that relationship. Um, 
And I know that redress specifically talks about taking a holistic approach. Um, so what does that actually mean when you say we're taking a holistic approach to... So, issues? yeah, we talk about undertaking holistic strategic litigation. That's our kind of tag, I suppose, in many ways. And, and many people will be a bit familiar with the idea of strategic litigation. So kind of doing something towards a cause, I suppose. But adding holistic in there is perhaps less less common. And um, it's we understand that kind of holistic approach to take account of a much broader range of things other than what a, a lawyer would perhaps traditionally think about when they're thinking about taking on a case, which would be about is the case good? Do we have any evidence? Are we going to win? <laughs> um, putting it crudely. But we would want to look at, at, not least because of the particular vulnerabilities of most of our clients, because of what they've been through and the torture that they've suffered. Um, we, we therefore feel that it's incumbent upon us to also take account of their holistic needs. So that would include the legal needs that they have, but it would also include their social situation, it might include their economic challenges that they're suffering, it would certainly include their physical health, their psychological health, and perhaps even their spiritual health as well. Um, and we would therefore be wanting to look beyond simply advising someone on their discrete focused legal needs to actually, if you like, almost caring for them in, in this process. And, and the, way that that, the way that that works in practice, I suppose, the different elements of that would be that we take it very seriously, as, as indeed most lawyers would, that they would provide a client with a range of different options. They provide information about rights and so on, what they could do to, to, to deal with their legal situation. Um, we would also take it very seriously that we would be supporting and accompanying a client throughout the process. And as Clara mentioned, these are often really long processes. And it's really important that we're there alongside people throughout those processes. Um, the slight risk in strategic litigation is that the process becomes the most important thing. But we feel very strongly that the process must always be led by the client, as, as I say, partly because of the particular vulnerabilities that our clients usually have. And in some ways, we take almost a secondary role um, alongside the client, obviously, but, but perhaps not always being the ones who are directing where things are going. But the, the legal case strategy would usually be decided in conjunction with, with the client. And we would also, again, given their particular vulnerabilities, try and involve other professionals who are involved in the wider care needs of that individual, whether that's their physical, medical um, doctors and so forth, or psychologists, other people dealing with their psychosocial health or their so socioeconomic position. And we try where we can to review the legal case strategy in conjunction with those professionals and taking into account those wider care needs. So, all of that stuff we'd say was holistic in terms of the individual. Um, and then the other really important aspect, if you're thinking about what is holistic, we're not just looking at, in a sense, we're not just looking at the holistic needs of the individual, but we're also looking at what are the holistic impacts of this case. So therefore we're looking beyond 
the individual case to what that case can uh, achieve in terms of change um, through the claim that's being brought, through the remedies that are sought, through the reparations that are awarded, um, and through the implementation, which as Clara absolutely rightly emphasizes, without implementation after you've got a great result, the, the great result will not have the impact that it needs to have. You will then be looking at what change you can achieve and how you can achieve that change in the broader society through, through advocacy, through engaging the activists who are probably already working on those issues, um, through use of the media, through engaging with communities of survivors and so on and and so redress's work for example has alongside our legal work our work on litigation has always included work on those policy aspects on the advocacy piece on communications on community engagement and so on so we see it in holistic in in that holistic way both from the point of view of the individual and in terms of the impacts of the case as a whole And so, Claire, I mean, I'd also be interested, you know, in addition to this kind of holistic view, I know that as a scholar, you have a quite kind of interdisciplinary perspective. And I'd be interested in how that interdisciplinary perspective helps to inform you, you know, in terms of... Well, uh, although I am a lawyer by training, I <clears throat> have also, uh, I, I value the contribution that other disciplines can do to human rights. And I see it not only as something that we should value, but that is essential to broaden the horizon of what law can achieve. Uh, so for example, I care a lot about rehabilitation as a form of reparation, meaning trying to ensure that victims of different violations uh, have access to mental and physical health care, but also to other uh, type of support, be vocational services, legal support, etc. Uh, so that they are able to move along uh, in their process of recovery. Uh, and, and to deal with rehabilitation, of course, I am not a doctor, I am not a psychologist, I'm not a social worker, uh, and so on and so forth. So I see the need to engage with these other disciplines to actually give meaning to rehabilitation in a particular case. So I can give you plenty of examples like that where I see the limitations of what I do. I do, for example, a lot of work on sexual violence. And, and for me to really grapple with the many challenges that it poses, I cannot do that on my own. I need, for example, sociologists, anthropologists, uh, doctors, physicians, psychologists, uh, experts on particular cultures that can help me to understand why in a particular context sexual violence has these connotations but not in others so that I can translate that into legal binding claims into good arguments that could help victims so I think it's absolutely essential but there is another part uh, where I think uh, more multi and interdisciplinary research can help us and is um, you know human rights can somehow become like a, a religion uh, and I do believe in that religion, if, if you want to put it that way, but I also am very conscious of the need to uh, question the underpinning theories and assumptions that we work with in human rights. And there I see the need to engage with philosophy, with politics, uh, etc., in order to all the time push to the limits my own assumptions and to see what are the most revolutionary, the most uh, 
promising areas of rights discourse that can actually help us move uh, in, into a world where, where social change is actually possible. I do want to see human rights as a discourse of change, and that discourse of change cannot be anything if we just leave it to lawyers, uh, although I am one of them. I think uh, uh, any success to get human rights to respond better to the reality of people and to claims for social change depend highly on our ability to connect different disciplines, not only to, to have multidisciplinary work, but actually on our ability to have interdisciplinary work. And I think at Essex, a university, and sorry for the, for the advert here to my own university, but I am working at the University of Essex because I think that's the place where we do human rights differently, where we want to promote interdisciplinary work across different disciplines, uh, where we are creating projects uh, to do that through the Human Rights Center. So, so I think it's crucial. Uh, the future, the future of, of, of rights depends on our ability to do interdisciplinary work. And what's so, I would say, inspiring um, about this is that, you know, Chris, you really brought out the ways I think that when you're actually doing the work of changing the world, so to speak, you know, it has to be one that is collaborative. And it sounds as if, you know, you've really at redress in creating this holistic strategic approach, um, try to make sure that you make decisions in a collaborative way with so many different wisdoms. And then Clara, I, I, I think the point that you've also brought out, which is that you need all these different perspectives because, you know, it is a collaborative venture, right? That this is about bringing all these ideas together, all these forms of wisdom together um, and all these forms of expertise together because we all have something to contribute in this respect. Um, and, and for me, that that's maybe a really nice um, uh, kind of introduction to what, what has become a case that I, I think um, maybe started small, but has become quite high profile and important and landmark. And um, probably I think did, uh, you know, th does touch on so many different levels of justice and wisdom. Um, so I thought we could maybe turn to speaking a little bit uh, about the case that you were just, that you're still involved with, uh, but that has just had a kind of landmark victory, which is, uh, of Azul Rojas Marin. Um, so if you wanted to maybe both of you give a little background to it and then we could you know, tell us a little bit about the case and maybe talk about how all these different aspects went into and touch upon this very important uh, Okay, decision. so if you want, I'll, I'll have a go at the facts, a little bit of the case, uh, and then we, we tell you together uh, how the case began to move along what, what has happened so far. So. Um, the case of Azul uh, began as the case of uh, Luis Alberto Rojas Marin. At the time, Azul uh, was, was gay. This happened in the year 2008 in a very small town in, uh, in the area of Casa Grande in Peru. Uh, Azul is really a, a peasant person with very low scarce resources. Uh, the area where she grew up is, is very, yeah, it's a very poor local, very local village uh, where everyone knows everyone. 
she is detained one night when she's walking uh, to her house late in the evening by the police. Police that, of course, knew her uh, uh, and uh, they were treating her very badly, you know, with all these stereotypes because of her sexual orientation. Uh, and they asked her for her identity card. She didn't have her identity card with her. The police, instead of taking her to her house to get the identity card, although I mentioned again, they knew who she was. Uh, they decided to take her to the police station uh, where she uh, was for uh, at least six hours. And during that time, she was, uh, yeah, uh, tortured. She was sexually uh, abused. She was raped. Uh, the police baton, which is this real uh, element of authority, you know, it represents authority, it represents power, was used and was inserted in her anus. Uh, at least in two occasions, um, and she was all the time uh, told uh, very uh, bad words related to her sexual orientation, uh, maricón de la mierda, coña de la madre, things that in our context we clearly understand as alluding to her sexual orientation. Uh, uh, there was no registration done at the police station as it should be done, of her detention, the time of the detention, the situation she was in when she was detained, etc. And then uh, early in the morning, next day, uh, she was released. Uh, she went back home. Uh, and then the, the search for justice uh, began uh, with Azul going to the police station uh, to complain about what had happened to her, Azul telling her mother and, and by the way, I chose the song of the uh, of, of Freddie Mercury uh, because uh, is the way Freddie Mercury said. Well, it, we are told that Freddie Mercury told her mom about her sexual orientation, his sexual orientation uh, through that song. No, uh, and I think here there was a very strong connection between Azul and her mom, who unfortunately passed away through the litigation of the case. Uh, and I felt it was uh, something to know that Azul was not the only one that suffered here. Her mom also suffered very terrible harm as a result of what's happening to Azul. She lived in the village uh, with Azul. She had to suffer all the stereotypes and discrimination that Azul also had to endure. Uh, and then the, the search for justice begins. And when this happened, uh, Azul faced yet another uh, let's say, uh, phase of discrimination because the members of the justice system, broadly speaking, all of them uh, did not believe her question, uh, what she was saying, all because of her sexual orientation. And what you had was various decisions from the justice system at the domestic level, considering that, of course, uh, nothing had happened to her because maximum what you can be talking here uh, is abuse of authority, but what torture? No torture. Uh, so that leads us to consider taking the case before the Inter-American system. I'm here going quite fast through the facts. We could engage with various of uh, of the facts at the domestic level, but I think what is to, what we need to concentrate is that uh, her particular condition at the time, being peasant, being poor, in a village where people knew her, where there were many stereotypes, uh, to the response of the justice system that is to precisely reinforce those stereotypes, not to believe her, not to do 
and act diligently in front of the claim that was in front of them. Uh, and, and the way the mother also suffer all of these uh, stereotypes, discrimination, and in a way kind of threats that were affecting uh, Azul. Uh, I think this is kind of the context at the domestic level. Uh, maybe, uh, Chris, you want to uh, mention uh, or refer now to the international part? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I mean, I think that the, the kind of long process of getting from the domestic uh, proceedings in, in sort of late 2000s through to the decision of the Inter-American Court um, in 2020 is, is a, a long history, which is probably not really going to uh, illuminate very much for, for, for the people listening to, to, to this pod. But um, I think it may be helpful to look at, at, at how the court has, has reached the, the, the positive decision it did. Um, and, and I think that the first thing to say about that would be that the, the court made some very interesting findings about what life is like in Peru for the LGBT community. Um, and it, it f found very strongly that, um, that there is prejudice that is very deep rooted in society there. Um, and it concluded that this structural discrimination has existed and that um, someone's sexual orientation or gender identity or gender expression um, are things which the, uh, which the Inter-American Convention on Human Rights does protect. Um, and so it, it made findings about the, the fact that it all shouldn't have been detained, first of all, um, it uh, made findings that that her rights to personal integrity and to a private life had been violated. And the inter-American system uses that phrase personal integrity to, um, to cover things like ill treatment and torture as well. Um, so it, it, it basically found that she had been raped in the way that had been alleged and that she had suffered this uh, discriminatory abuse as well um, and it, it it looked at how intentional all of that was and how how serious it was and what the purpose of it was and concluded then this is really crucial that the combination of that abuse and aggression that she had suffered um, was an act of torture on the part of the police officers and the court looked at some of the expert evidence that had been produced and, and found that, the, um, that, that sexual violence that involves that kind of rape, especially when it's carried out with a tool of authority, such as that police baton, which Clara mentioned, um, all the while, whilst derogatory remarks are being made, um, shows that the specific motive of that crime was to discriminate against her. And that is one of the key elements um, in, in the decision. Um, and, then, and then also the court um, made findings about um, how these types of cases, especially those involving sexual violence, um, should be investigated um, in cases where people are 
um, from the LGBT community. Um, courts previously made quite helpful, um, has, has, has made decisions that are quite helpful regarding sexual violence cases where the victims have been women. But this was the first case where they'd had the chance to set out a, a way in which these cases should be um, investigated when someone is from the uh, LGBT community. And, and, and I would like to, may I, may I add something there? So, I think it's a, it's a great example, not only about the need to have lawyers uh, and, and uh, you know, alliances like that of redress from Sex La Coordinadora and myself in cases like this, but also to have bodies like the Inter-American Court really ready to engage uh, with a broader understanding of these issues. And here I just want to mention one. Uh, one of the expert witnesses that appeared before the Inter-American Court was Maria Mercedes Gomez. She is a sociologist uh, that specializes in criminology, and she presented before the court this concept of violence by prejudice, and she explored how her own research on this violence by prejudice was present in the case of Azul, and that helped the court, and the court embraced the concept, and that helped the court to actually consider that all the elements that it had, contextual elements, led it to understand that what happened to Azul was torture because of her sexual uh, orientation. And there was a clear discriminatory context that allowed this to happen. Uh, so I think that's, uh, uh, for me, it's a, it's a milestone in terms of an international, supranational body, really ready to learn from other disciplines to precisely uh, widen uh, the, the, the remits of key concepts like the prohibition of torture. Uh, the, other thing that's, the other thing that's interesting from the point of view well, of, um, of lawyers perhaps working in, 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 in other jurisdictions is, is, is the, the range of the reparations that was, that was ordered. So, so these are the kind of measures that the court says has to be done to try and remedy the situation that, 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 they've, um, that they've made these findings about. And, and often, as lawyers, we are often criticised for our remedies being quite narrow. Uh, a lot of lawyers in, um, in the UK and in other um, jurisdictions will, will think that reparations means compensation. What, what you're after here for the victim is, is, is money because the courts mm -hmm. often at, at a domestic level have a wide range of different options available. And I think that what's really interesting in these regional and international human rights tribunals, such as the Inter-American Court, is that they adopt a far more holistic approach. So as well as being able to award things like general damages, which would cover things like suffering and emotional distress and so on, and, and also being able to award sp specific financial losses, like loss of earnings or something like that, that they will also go into much more holistic, coming back to that word again, um, reparations as well, so that they will be looking at trying to put people back into the situation they were in before, restoring their liberty maybe, giving protection for people to be able to return to their homes, reinstating people to employment, giving land back to indigenous communities, etc. They'll be looking at the, the kind of rehabilitation that Clara mentioned, this kind of restorative rehabilitation where we're looking at medical and psychological treatment about medication and so on the the, the, the 
these regional bodies will look at other means of what they call satisfaction, which is basically just non-financial remedies that, that will assist people in, in, in having their suffering redressed. So, for example, um, public acts to acknowledge responsibility, apologies from the state, um, measures or, or like monuments to commemorate victims or events and that kind of thing. But also alongside that, and we'll talk about the specifics in a minute on our source case, but things to stop these these violations happening again. So training for public officials, reform to laws and so forth, and you know, improvements to prison conditions in cases that involve that kind of thing too. And, and finally, and really importantly, an obligation to investigate and prosecute and punish. So often that will be part of the reparations that, that are awarded as well. Uh, may I add something there uh, in relation to these guarantees of non-repetition that Chris just referred to in his final comments? Is I think that if there is anything transformative or potentially transformative about reparations <clears throat> and human rights law is precisely this area of the measures that these tribunals can order or states can take precisely to attack or try to get rid of the causes of the violations. And I think in a case like the case of Azul, where the problem was clearly discrimination against persons because of their sexual orientation, uh, both uh, within the community, but also within the justice system, the police, etc. What you need is not only measures that will repair Azul and her mother, but also measures that will aim to prevent from this to happen again. Yes? Else you don't, you, what do I get uh, in terms of social change if all I get are reparations for Azul and her mother as much as they need it? I believe they are not sufficient because what we really need is to transform the structures that made those violations possible and that can actually endanger any other person in the situation of Azul, right? So I think here we have a court and we did it. Of course, the court didn't act on this on its own. We and Azul, we fought for guarantees of non-repetition, for these type of structural measures that could prevent this from happening again. And I, I have to say that the Inter-American Court really we went quite away uh, in terms of awarding various measures of, of non-repetition that will be very important in the future if we ensure that they are implemented. Uh, the court understood its role not only as one about correction, but also about one of transformation. We help the court in that process, yes? But the court also understood that the full transformation that we need to ensure that people are not discriminated because of their sexual orientation uh, is not only dependent on international tribunals. And I think that's where the court draw the line. We need more, but I think this case is a contribution in the sense of that type of alliances that we need worldwide to ensure that people in the situation of Azul are not discriminated against. So the court, what did the court do? The court ordered Peru to adopt a protocol for the effective criminal investigation of violence against members of the LGBTI community. And the protocol shall be binding, said the Inter-American Court under domestic law. This is quite, quite important. And it should also include due diligence standards developed in the judgment. So I think the went quite some way in telling the state what it had to have in place when investigating when investigating this type of cases the court for example also instructed the state to provide training to members of the justice system and the police on lgtbi rights and due diligence investigations 
and very important because this doesn't exist in Peru at the moment, it ordered Peru to implement a data collection system to officially register all cases of violence against members of the LGBTI community, including disaggregated information. And I think this is crucial because for you to be able to document discrimination, these registries become essential in terms of evidence. Uh, we, we felt always during the litigation that we wish to have a lot of information uh, that actually the state has the obligation to get for us to be able to make the most compelling argument in terms of the existence of discrimination. Uh, we face lots of issues there, but again, uh, I'm very happy to say that we managed to convince the court that there was discrimination in this case. But these types of registries will help in the future for anyone making uh, or feeling, just to starting with the fact that they might feel that they are discriminated against. If these registries exist, that will be documented and that will provide important grounds for future litigation in the future. And, and it's interesting, Peter, that if, if, if I'm talking to clients at Redress, you know, they're, they're often the, the kind of idea of compensation, this traditional idea of reparations, if you like, is, is often not the most important thing. Often the most important thing for, in my experience, for torture survivors is that the truth be acknowledged, that there be an apology for what's happened. That, and, and as Clara's just mentioned, crucially, that they're often most interested in ensuring that this doesn't happen to anyone else. Yeah, yeah and, and there too, Azul, Azul was so vocal on this. She, you know, for, for a victim uh, of torture in the form of sexual violence and rape, and also a person whose gender identity or sexual orientation is questioned, is very hard to come forward. So there you face the first challenge. We, we prefer to keep quiet because this is going to be detrimental to me to speak it out, to try to find justice. Azul surpassed that. She said, I, I don't care about that because I really don't want this to happen to anybody else. She was always emphatic on that. And, and I think we owe this to people like her to, to be ready to, to speak out and to tell others what happened to her regardless of all the suffering she had to go through all of these years to achieve this, what I call partial justice. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, what is so striking about this is that listening and, and you know, it, it, you mentioned previously the metaphor of a seed, Clara, um, but that this started if I can, with one act of incredible bravery. I mean, the ability for Azul to afterwards go to the police station and say, you know, I was tortured, that something was done to me that was wrong. And to continue to pursue this, you know, I, I almost feel like we have to take just a pause for a moment because it is such an extraordinary act. Um, and then, to continue to fight and to follow through with this. And I know that Chris, you mentioned, well, you know, it might not be interesting to uh, listeners, you know, to go from, you know, when this occurred and the initial decisions all the way to the final decision internet, uh, by the Inter-American courts. But I think it would be very interesting because it's, there's so many, I mean, obviously you have to give a, a kind of potted history of it, but 
there's so many things along the way in terms of how you make these decisions, how far you push things, how you know how to frame this, how you understand and start to identify what is the really core issue here in addition to you know the way in which this person's rights were violated. Um, so I'd be very interested in some of these kind of, if you can almost give like some of the ways in which some of these decisions were reached and how this kind of progressed because it was something that lasted over a year, uh, over a decade. And as mentioned, I mean, just as someone listening to this, it started with an incredible act of bravery. Chris, my... would you like to? No, have... I think you should, you should come in here because you were involved almost from the beginning, weren't you? Yes. Well, okay. Uh, so uh, when it was clear that justice was not going to happen domestically, uh, and there, well, I'm not going to get into the issues related to exhaustion of domestic remedies or not, we went international. And this happened in the year 2009. And in the inter-American system, we have an inter-American commission and an inter-American court. So you have to go first to the inter-American commission. The case was with the inter-American commission for almost 10 years, uh, which, uh, and, and, and this is because of different reasons. Uh, the Inter-American Commission is a fantastic uh, supranational body, is not fully judicial, it's a quasi-judicial quasi body, uh, but it has so, so many cases coming from 35 countries in the region uh, that it's difficult to actually uh, give momentum to, to some and not to others. But I think that parallel to the case, so the case happens in 2008, the facts, the, the, the first facts begin to happen, began to happen in 2008. But when the case gets to the Inter-American Commission in 2009, at the international level, we were not as yet as developed as today in terms of mechanisms that will be protecting the rights of LGTBI people. So in this way, the case of Azul is before its time, let's put it that way. We began with this call even before we had mechanisms at the international level, like the UN Special Rapporteur uh, or Independent Expert on, on the Rights of LGTBI people, or we even within the inter-American system, the Special Rapporteurship in relation to this. Uh, so I think uh, the case gained speed as these issues gain importance within the international agendas. Uh, they saw also the importance of what we were saying or arguing in the cases, and this helped the case move faster at the Inter-American Commission. Also seeing the case as a first, uh, the Inter-American Commission would call it like that, to allow the court to deal with this type of violence and torture in a person because of uh, her sexual orientation. Uh, so all of these things together allow the commission to then decide to send the case to the Inter-American Court. And the Inter-American Court uh, basically uh, really took on board the court and decided the case uh, in this manner. We had a hearing before the Inter-American Court last year in August. Uh, the hearing happened in Barranquilla and is available uh, online. Uh, you can see uh, the, the more than... Uh, six hours of, of hearing we had, where we discussed many of these issues. Um, yeah, so I think, in, interestingly, uh, redress with PromSex and La Coordinadora de Derechos Humanos somehow got there first with the call for the recognition of discrimination because of sexual orientation uh, as a possible motive for torture. 
uh, before even these international mechanisms had arrived there. But when they got there, the mechanisms also did a fantastic job in ensuring that justice was done. So again, alliances, solidarity, uh, all based on the belief that here clear rights uh, had been violated and that the evidence uh, was there. Hmm. So one thing, um, if I could just ask a question uh, from a kind of very naive, again, legal standpoint, is that I, I've heard several times this, this point of motivation for torture. So how much does being able to identify the motivation of the people, per per perpetrators, play into actually proving that an act? Things that you normally have to show when you're trying to prove a case of torture it does depend a little bit on the test that you're following. But the three things that you're usually looking at are showing that there's been severe pain and suffering, and that could be physical or mental, that it's been intentionally inflicted, and that it's been done for a purpose. And that could be, for example, in order to obtain a confession, or it could be punishing someone, or it could be intimidating someone or coercing them, or, and this was obviously the case in Asul, um, for some kind of reason based on discrimination. So those would be the normal kind of tests that you'd be looking at. Um, and obviously here we, would, we were very much focused on that issue about discrimination. That was the motive. That was the, uh, the, the, the reason that the treatment was inflicted on, on her. Mm -hmm. um one aspect before talking about some of the broader ramifications of uh, the case is you mentioned previously uh, earlier in the discussion about, you know, the trauma that also in many ways you undertake uh, when you're dealing with cases like this. So in what ways do you, you know, you know, because, because I think there's a lot of different aspects of the work that goes into, you know, making a true difference in the world that you're doing, but you know, you're dealing with people who have undergone horrific things. So how do you deal with that as uh, yourself, uh, as kind of lawyers in terms of being able to take care of your own kind of mental and emotional? Uh, well, maybe I, I have a go at that question. Um, well, I think uh, techniques of self-care are incredibly important. And I think the human rights community is just beginning to recognize that this is essential for us to be able to conduct our work, be, be it academics or be practitioners or both. Uh, at least in my personal case, uh, I try to do a lot of exercise, listen to music. I like discussing these issues with people. I, I feel that talking about these issues with others that can understand what is happening to me is always very, uh, very important. Uh, I don't do any type of uh, special therapy. I could, uh, but at times it's lack of time, which doesn't really allow me to do that. But at least these three things, uh, and I try to sleep well, I think it's essential also uh, to keep uh, a healthy mind, uh, good, good, good sleep, good rest. Uh, but I, I do recognize, and I, I felt it in many occasions in my life, that uh, the cases we deal with really uh, take a lot of your, uh, well, the, 
they put a lot of psychological pressure on you. Um, and yeah, so, so I think we need to, to identify uh, yeah, techniques that would allow us to cope with uh, this dark side of humanity. I, I agree with all of that. And I, for me, I, I, I do also do many of those kinds of things. But I think for me, one of the really important things is to kind of keep uh, is to keep almost rather artificially demarcated the different parts of, you know, work from from home and family and so on. And I find that quite important to do. Um, and the other thing to, to, to recognize is that if, if I'm dealing with a particular client who is a torture survivor, it, it's certainly not the case that every time I talk to that client, I need to discuss the absolutely horrific details of the torture that they underwent it would be it would be unnecessary it would not be sensible it would not be probably very helpful for them if every time i was talking to them i was i was delving into the depths of the horror that they suffered so often our dealing with the clients will be dealing with the kind of normal lawyerly kind of things you know you're talking about submissions or you're talking about um you know the next steps that you need to take and and so on. So, so it's not that every day for, for me as a lawyer representing torture survivors is full of that is full of that horror. It is obviously the context of our work, but it is not um, a, a kind of hour by hour reality um, for, for us do, doing this kind of work at redress at least. No, I mean, I, I think that's, that's really important and interesting. And um, I think that going kind of from the personal to the more kind of global and structural. Um, and obviously there's just so much we could talk about. Uh, we could do this for days and, and I would really love to have you both on again as guests. Almost, you know, as a prelude to maybe a, a broader conversation we can have is that as someone who does study um, kind of, you know, the creation of 21st century common-based communities um, and economies, and that looks specifically at challenging um, capitalist power relations and capitalist economic relations and social relations. You wouldn't necessarily think that, um, as you've kind of uh, referred to it, Glenn, like the quote unquote religion of human rights uh, is something that is a huge part of that necessarily. But Chris, you mentioned specifically that you've worked with, you know, indigenous land rights. And I do know that actually, you know, contrary to a lot of popular views that actually, you know, human rights uh, right now is really being a key force for expanding what is the human right, you know? Um, so I'd be interested in, in kind of talking a little bit about your views about this, about, you know, in the 21st century, how is the type of work you're doing, not just protecting people's, you know, kind of quote unquote traditional rights, but actually expanding- Yeah, I think it's quite interesting that, that this Asul uh, case, right, as um, the battleground for the case was not really economic and social rights. It, <clears throat> the main violations that were found were infringements of rights to freedom from torture about, you know, equality, uh, liberty, judicial guarantees, you know, traditionally, they're the kind of human rights that people, you know, see, see as the, the, the foundation of the human rights system. Um, and so it's quite interesting that in the end, as we've talked about, the, the, the in some ways, that one of the 
one of the greatest impacts of this case may well be if you look at the reparations that we've discussed and about these kind of how these things are going to impact on society in 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 Peru and indeed beyond there in terms of the, the way that you deal with uh, with discrimination the way that police bodies and prosecutors respect um sexual orientation and gender expression etc how they deal with investigations and prosecutions um how societies might begin to tackle stereotypes regarding sexual orientation and those um other issues that lgbt people are are suffering in in, in that context um so it's quite interesting that, that that this case was never about um economic social and cultural rights but it may be that that's where its biggest impact might end up being in some ways. And it kind of, for me, it, it, it begins to show how this human rights project um, in its broadest sense, which historically has often been seen as being civil and political rights on one side and economic and social rights on the other, is perhaps increasingly being seen more as an indivisible body of, of rights. Uh, and this interrelationship and multidisciplinarity, which we've talked about in terms of our work and the work on de dealing with these case, cases, is perhaps a, um, a more sensible way, in, as time passes, may be seen as a more sensible way to consider human rights as a whole, that you can't just deal with civil and political rights without them having a socio-economic uh, and cultural impact and vice versa. Yes, I, I would absolutely agree with Chris. For me, there are two key dimensions uh, about the case of Azul that are worth highlighting. Although it's a case about civil and political rights, discrimination is an underpinning principle of human rights. And as such, it is connected intrinsically each right and each economic, social, cultural, and I would even add environmental rights are connected to it. So when we face discrimination, it immediately triggers uh, questions about protection in relation to all rights, even if in this case we were particularly addressing some. But a response by the court and what we expect from the state in terms of fighting discrimination is something that should actually underpin uh, or cross all all rights. So I, I accentuate that dimension because I think it's crucial, this indivisibility, this interrelation uh, across rights. And I do believe that by pushing the frontiers of classical conceptions about torture, we are also showing more that indivisibility and we are also uh, enhancing protection for groups like members of the LGBTI community, which is again, a manner to engage with these broader questions about social change and economic and social rights. And I would say, you know, while there might be some dominant views about human rights that are still very conservative and very much focused on civil and political rights, my particular reading of human rights struggles today is that there is plenty of discourses, competing discourses, competing ideologies, many of which are actually trying to subvert, if you want, the frontiers of conservative knowledge. So on indigenous rights, uh, just because you mentioned the topic, but if you go at the jurisprudence of the Inter-American Court on the subject, 
uh, well, you will be fascinated with what you would find. A clear jump from individual rights discourse into collective rights discourse into collective reparations. Uh, and I think I can continue giving you examples of this. The Inter-American Court has also the most amazing jurisprudence in terms of the protection of economic, social, and cultural rights, being the first tribunal internationally that has really taken on uh, this idea that we need to make them fully justiciable. So I think that we are giving different fights at different tempos, but that there are many like us now out there trying not only to have protests, as you were saying at the beginning, Peter, but actually trying to galvanize all the tools we have in order to push for new borders, yes, in terms of knowledge, in terms of law, in terms of possibilities for social change. So I, I am actually quite optimistic. We have faced a terrible backlash uh, against human rights law in recent years, but I have to say that one of the issues that makes me very hopeful is to see that there is like a, many ecosystems of peoples and actors out there trying to use human rights in diverse ways to mobilize others, to enhance protection, uh, and, and, and to create new limits of what is possible in terms of, of that protection and, and the recognition of those rights. Hmm. So I think that's a really uh, important and inspiring place that unfortunately we have to stop at now because I think it, it opens up what really can be the future of as we said, not just protecting our traditional rights, but reimagining the very possibilities of what we can achieve as humans. So I really want to thank uh, both of you, Clara and Chris, for coming on. Um, it was a fascinating discussion and so informative. And again, I want to thank you for all the hard work that you do and important work that you do. Um, there is another one. No, thank you to you, Peter. You really, thank Definitely. you for the opportunity to reflect about much. these things, and we continue all on the fight, I guess. Thanks very much, Peter. Been great to be with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and remember until next time, Another World is not only possible, but happening right now.